Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss ideas that can shape a sustainable food system, from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert de Graff, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we would like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, the Nature Conservancy, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to Food Systems. Today, in the aftermath of the events in FFA Portugal and the Biodiversity Summit in particular, I'm pleased to be joined by Humberto Delgado Rosa. He's the Director for Natural Capital at DG Environment in the European Commission. Humberto, thank you so much for joining Food Systems today. My pleasure. I want to start on the very macro level. The UN Biodiversity Summit is going to take place in China this year with a headline goal that in 2050, all world ecosystems are restored, resilient and adequately protected. Do you think this is a realistic goal? Well, it is certainly a very necessary goal because we do know that the world is facing a major um, environmental crisis. We know it from uh, climate change to begin with, but also from this immense uh, amount of loss of biodiversity and the services it provides to humankind. And guess what? We are strictly dependent of the services that the biosphere provides us. We don't have machines to do air or water or food for us. It's nature that does it with our help. So in that sense, it's an absolute need to have healthy ecosystems uh, brought back uh, where they were lost. So uh, in terms of realism, it's um, it's all an issue of how you look into realism. If necessity brings in realism, we will have to do it. Is it hard, demanding? Yes, maybe so, but it also um, compensates a lot for the many benefits that humankind can have. So let's see what happens in the Biodiversity Summit to come. I would certainly expect there a new deal for nature that would pave the way towards being in a very different state in 2050. Do you have any expectations as to whether or not there will be a kind of enforcement mechanism there? The Paris Climate Summit has the wretched mechanism, but that is not an enforceable thing. Uh, Do you foresee something similar for the Biodiversity Summit? No, I don't. I don't think the, the approach in the Biodiversity Summit would be around enforceability. But it should be pretty much, in my view, as happened in the Climate Summit in Paris, around measurement, reporting, verification. So a reinforce a strengths process uh, through which when uh, a party does a pledge, a commitment, it can be verified, it can be reported, it can be monitored, and as you said, it can be ratcheted up for increased ambition. So if in the CBD we would have an equivalent process as the one launched in Paris for climate, I think we would be in a different setting. So let's talk a little bit about the EU's contribution. The new 2030 biodiversity strategy has been uh, released and one of the headline targets is a having 10% of land and 10% of sea under strict protection. How do you how can the European Commission make sure that the member states who will have to implement this live up to the targets set out? 
Well, first, the biodiversity strategy for 2030 has many targets and a lot of ambition. I actually think it is the most ambitious strategy of its kind the world has seen. And indeed, one of the targets is on protected areas, which is 30% of protected areas in European land and water, one third of which under strict protection. So the 10% you referred to. We will do for the strict protection as for the uh, non-strict protection for the protected areas overall. First, it, uh, for it, for this target, we can count Natura 2000 areas, this largest network of protected areas you have from the Birds and Habitats Directive, also nationally designated protected areas, and also uh, uh, the so-called other effective conservation measures, when even if it's not a formal protected area, there are regulations and, and uh, measures applying in the long term that do deliver uh, the, uh, the conservation. So what we are doing is working with member states on definitions, including definition of strict protection and criteria to identify where are the habitats and ecosystems that do need nature to be essentially undisturbed so as to deliver the, the benefits that we want to extract from that particular kind of biodiversity. So we will count on this uh, collaboration with the member states. We will, uh, uh, of course, measure and monitor, and we will see in a couple of years if we are getting there or if, or if other measures might be needed. So if the Natura 2000 areas and the national parks and some of the other areas you mentioned are already counted under this 10% strict protection, what kind of an expansion are we talking about? Not necessarily in terms of hectares, but do we need to double the surface area? How much extra are we talking about, broadly speaking? Well, let's say on land, we are very close to the 30% target because when we count in a 2,000 areas and nationally designated areas, we are around 26%, so not that far from 30 It's on, on the ocean that we are more far, far away. We are around... Uh, 10% protected areas between Natura 2000 sites and nationally designated areas. But also in the sea, first, it's bigger by one side. And second, it's where it's very evident when we all um, agree on having a protected area where there is some kind of restriction, including for fisheries, you usually reap the benefits in not many years on more fisheries around the protected area because fish can get bigger, more larvae, more eggs, so more productivity also. Um, so I think, uh, although ambitious, both targets, the 30% and the 10% within it, will be achievable. So let's talk a little bit. Let's go to the uh, Biodiversity Summit. It's just been uh, at the FFA Portugal. During that conference, you said that we can't afford another common agricultural policy that does not work with the environment and the climate. Now, last week, we recorded with Berenice Dupont of the EEB and many green organizations and parts of the European Parliament are already expressing their doubts that the next CAP reform will work fully with the Green Deal, with the Farm to Fork and with this new biodiversity strategy. Do you believe that the CAP reform as it stands can accommodate the, the goals of the biodiversity strategy? First, let me just remind, of course, the CAP proposal by the Commission was presented before the Green Deal. So the Commission did take a look on whether its proposal that preceded the Green Deal would be compatible with the Green Deal ambition. And the conclusion was yes, provided the level of ambition was maintained by the co-legislators or even reinforced. Now, of course, we uh, 
we know that some of the proposals by Parliament and Council do reinforce some elements, but many others do the contrary. So the process is ongoing of negotiation and we cannot know yet what will be the result. In any case, my general comment on that is um, I don't think we can really expect full revolutions. This is a, a transition aspect also in terms of what we can extract from the cap reform. But the cap reform does need very much to move towards increased climate and biodiversity ambition. And that's very easy to understand. It all comes from societal expectations. The cap money is taxpayers' money. And a majority of taxpayers nowadays is actually expecting more for climate and biodiversity of agricultural policy. There's, uh, there's a, a, a relatively widespread perception that past efforts to green the cap did not deliver enough. So if the, that would happen again, I think that the politics of it would become more stringent for next reforms. And I don't think that's uh, what we all want. So we do need a cap reform functioning for sure for farmers and agriculture, but pretty much also to deliver on biodiversity and the climate in, in uh, agricultural land. The last CAP, the, when it was the greening was introduced, I think many voices were saying at the time, this is a transitionary CAP that will lead into a more environmental policy the next time around. Uh, now it, we are again hearing this is a transition CAP and the next one will be the green one. How, how do we square that circle and how do we ensure that the next CAP reform, let's broadly say in 2028-2030, will then actually be the green one? Well, of course, I don't have a crystal ball to have any idea of what will happen with the next uh, CAP. My feeling is there's a, a lot of tension and watch over what the CAP does or doesn't. There's an increased criticism on results. I know there was the greening attempt and it was a, a fair one, but the results on the ground actually show that things did not improve, certainly not for biodiversity. So what I say is this is politically unsustainable. If you have a part of society loading money into a policy, you must match what that part of society wants with that policy, which did not happen enough till now. I still do hope that the cap now under negotiation can make a significant difference, still to be seen. In case it wouldn't, who knows what would happen in 2022. It could be a, a, a rather radical uh, new approach to common agriculture policy. And I don't think we need radicalism. We need steps, but firm steps. I still hope we will see them now. Well, let's talk about some of those steps then, ones included in the biodiversity strategy. Uh, again, during the FFA Biodiversity Summit in Portugal, you talked about the increase in organic farming and that too will help biodiversity. Do you think that the 25% target for organic farming, do you think that can be achieved as part of the biodiversity strategy as well as the farm to fork, by the way? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think it can be achieved. It is ambitious, but there's many indicators that show that the potential for organic farming to grow remains very huge. We have seen uh, an increase of some 66% in 10 years between 2009-2019. The sales kept, kept increasing and the prices also. So uh, organic farming is very far from getting to a level where growth is difficult. 
uh, or not non-attainable. We actually already have some member states, for example, Austria, that have been even depassed that target. And we can put the instruments, including the common agriculture policy, the strategic plans, uh, the money from research for agriculture devoted to uh, organic farming, as foreseen is the, orga the organic farming action plan that was approved in March this year. So it's um, uh, all a matter of political will, yes, but at the same time, you know, Europeans do cherish healthy food and they uh, equate healthy food with naturalness in their food. Organic farming is not the only a reply to that, but it's certainly a reply that it's dear to many European consumers. So that's for me the main reason to believe the target will be attained. You lead perfectly into it. Uh, the word natural, you, you mentioned it during the summit and you do it now again. But natural, unlike the word organic, is not a protected term in, in the European Union. Anybody can say you know, even highly processed foods are natural because essentially, you know, corn syrup is essentially derived from corn. Should we have more care about how we use words like natural? Should we create more protected categories so that consumers are clear about what it is they're buying and whether or not it does actually make a contribution to biodiversity? That's a quite important question. And indeed, the Green Deal approach also aims to tackle that labeling information is pretty important for consumers and we've seen a lot of greenwash together with uh, positive approaches on on products and organizations towards their delivery for the environment and the climate i can say that for to give you an example we have in the pipeline in the commission what we call a green claims initiative which aims to uh, settle the process the methodologies that whoever does a green claim will have to follow, noticeably product environmental footprint methodologies. So, uh, yes, that it's an important question. The reply is coming on more uh, regulated approaches to labeling so that consumers actually know they can trust whatever green label they will see in front of them. So let's turn to a different aspect of the biodiversity strategy. Uh, one of the other headline targets is that the ambition is to plant uh, 3 billion new trees, uh, I think per year even, up until 2030. Um, what I always found interesting is about this, there's usually a lot of emphasis about tree planting, but less about tree management, about ensuring that once it's planted, they actually reach maturation. How will the Commission and the Member States ensure that it it's more than just planting and they just sit in the ground and die after five years, essentially. Well, thank you for uh, bringing attention to this important pledge, but it's three billion extra trees until 2030, not per year. Uh, and it's, Apologies. Uh, yeah, and it's ambitious enough in the sense that it corresponds to doubling what would be the normal pace of more trees in Europe. Uh, so indeed, this will come. This uh, we will come with uh, a staff working document accompanying the European forest strategy in preparation. Or now we see, organize, and stimulate this three billion pledge. And indeed, uh, there's a, a, an important point you've done. It's, it's not just an issue of planting a tree. It's planting the tree and ensuring it grows. It's very easy to plant a seedling that may die uh, after a bit of time. So it, it does need some care. And on other aspects that will be very crucial, you know, to plant a tree is not necessarily good. It depends what tree you plant, where you plant it, 
and how you do it. So we will also come with this uh, orientation towards the right tree in the right place uh, for the right purpose and also provisions on how to, in, uh, to bring enabling conditions for this pledge to come, to count the pledge and to deliver what is a very welcome goal for many Europeans. More trees around. This is interesting. You've mentioned now we started and, and you talked about when we talked about China and the Biodiversity Summit. And, and now again, you talk a lot about measuring and counting. Does the European Union have enough systems in place to do all this data gathering and collecting? Or do we need to reshape the way we collect our data and how it's then presented as well? Well, there is indeed, uh, we could call it a reshaping or if you want a new approach overall on governance of the pillars of the Green Deal and the Green Deal itself. We have the Green Deal, we will have the Yates Environmental Action Program, this chapeau of environmental and climate policy. We have the Circular Economy Action Plan, the Zero Pollution Action Plan, the Biodiversity Strategy and so forth. So if you look into the Biodiversity Strategy, you find there provisions on the reinforced governance of the, of the biodiversity strategy together with the member states so as to have an adequate set of indicators, monitoring capacities and articulation with member states and stakeholders to make it for real the following up of each target pledge or commitment in the biodiversity strategy and overall. So yes, we are reshaping and reinforcing governance overall. All right, before we get to our final question, I wanted to ask you about one more point about the biodiversity strategy I found very interesting. You mentioned that the headline funding will be 20 billion euros a year, but that will come from a mix of EU, national and private funding. I wonder if you could give a bit more detail on how this funding mix, how it's constituted and how it will be achieved. Yes, pleased to do it, but uh, I will start by the, by the EU funding. Because, you know, when the Green Deal came in, to be honest, of course, Climate was there with all the due attention it needs as an emergency. But for me, a big novelty was biodiversity being treated in an equal rank of importance as climate change. And indeed, we've seen many steps towards that, including the ambitious biodiversity strategy. Now, there's a big novelty also in the multi-annual financial framework of the EU, we do have a climate target, as before, even reinforced, now to 30% of the funding, but we now have a biodiversity um, target also. So the Commission will track how the EU funding is spent, and we will need to reach at least 7.5% by 2024, moving up to 10% as from 2026. And this is a hard target, so it will make a difference in, in, the, in terms of mobilizing EU funding overall to biodiversity. Now, so this is a big part of the money. There's, of course, the uh, recovery and resilience facility, which is also big money that should be applied both for climate and for biodiversity, bring uh, an extra into it. And then on leveraging the mix, as you said, between um, public and private, well, some instruments, financial instruments like InvestEU, they will have windows also to cater for uh, nature investments, as we have seen in the natural capital financing facility that pre-existed as, as a test pilot we have conducted. Uh, this, together with the move of so many businesses and private entities 
towards taking into account their risks and dependencies of natural capital and their need to invest on what we can call a regenerative economy that gives more than it takes will, in our view, amount to this uh, mix, uh, reaching at least 20 billion per year. If I were to ask you for a rough percentage division in this 20 billion year, how much of it will come from the EU? How much will it be in member state and how much of it will be from this private channel? Now, it's difficult and indeed I don't have a reply for you because I don't have that number repetition. That's uh, absolutely fair. Uh, we're coming up to the end of the podcast and I want to ask you the same question, which is what the same one we ask of everybody who comes on, which is if you could give one idea or one policy suggestion to make a more sustainable food system overall, what would it be? Okay, there's one overall on sustainability that I say I would say also applies to the food system, which is um, humans react very well to um, some indicators let's call it that way and one of them is money in their pockets so what we need overall is to make more expensive the unsustainable practices and relieve the costs of the sustainable practices so i would say whenever there's the political opportunity to uh, use incentives or the fiscal system well bring in the hidden costs of production into the prices that will get you to somewhere. Uh, a bit of a, an addition that I see very promising is we see a lot of growing attention, uh, particularly among the youth, the millennials, to healthy diets. There's a lot of moves towards trying to, to change the options of our diets towards being more sustainable, which goes hand in hand with being more healthy. So I would say that public policies that also help orientate, bring the awareness on what is a healthy food and a, a sustainably, environmentally sustainable food is another approach that one should have. With this mix, I think we would give quite a push for sustainable food systems. Humberto Delgado Rosa, Director for Natural Capital at DG Environment and the European Commission. Thank you so much for joining Food Systems today. Thank you very much. My pleasure again. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our new episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter, at Forum Fag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as FFA events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day.